Right now on Matter of Fact, thinking about leaving your job, you're not alone. There were widespread reports of burnout um, across all sectors of the economy, including individuals working from home, and burnout is a predictor of people quitting their jobs. Millions of Americans are walking away from work, fueling the great resignation. Why the man who coined the term thinks both workers and employers will likely come out ahead. Plus, sick and tired of empty promises, some residents of Puerto Rico are turning to the sun for solutions to their power problems. Soledad explores the movement that has people building their own energy grids to prevent the devastation of hurricanes like Maria. And Americans in rural communities are twice as likely to die from COVID as people in cities. This is a public health crisis. Um, the question is, what, what have we done collectively to protect populations? The urgent call for action from doctors treating patients in some of the hardest hit counties in the country. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Thinking about quitting your job? Ready to resign? If so, you could become part of what's being called the Great Resignation, an outgrowth of the economic disruption that's been caused by the pandemic. Of course, there's also inflation and soaring unemployment rates, yet employers are struggling to fill jobs. A record number of workers, four million of them, left jobs in April. And when we look at April, May and June numbers altogether, nearly 11.5 million workers quit. Many workers are looking for better working conditions, better work-life balance and better pay. I'm joined by Anthony Klotz. He's a professor of management at Texas A&M University. Professor Anthony Klotz, so nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. You're the guy who coined the term the Great Resignation. And I'm so curious about when you saw this trend coming. It was late 2020, late last year. Um, as the pandemic was still going on, I was observing four different trends that I thought might come together to lead to higher turnover or, or a wave of resignations. The first of which was in 2020, there was a, a large decrease in resignations, which makes sense because it was a time of uncertainty. Um, in addition, there were widespread reports of burnout um, across all sectors of the economy, including individuals working from home, and burnout is a predictor of people quitting their jobs. Uh, in addition, individuals were having sort of like these uh, sort of pandemic epiphanies and big thoughts about life pivots during the pandemic. And then finally, a lot of individuals was, were working from home. I knew there would be some percentage that would rather leave their jobs than go back to working in person. And it sort of seemed like we were on the cusp of a great resignation as a result of those. This disruption or reshuffling, however you want to think about it, is it all good? Is it all bad? For employees, this is a moment where they might have more opportunities to work in different areas. Coming out of the pandemic, there's this wide array of work arrangements that companies are offering, um, ranging from hybrid to remote work to work from home. These companies have been focused on getting through the pandemic uh, and now shifting focus to the great resignation takes a moment. But in that response, you can see organizations raising wages, improving benefits, um, and, and taking employee well-being and mental health more seriously than maybe they have in the past. I was surprised to see that the biggest group of people who are resigning are, seem to be between 30 and 45 years old, right? So those are mid-career employees. Uh, and the biggest place, places, healthcare, totally get that one, but tech. Explain that. 
Well, there are, so in healthcare, yeah, it makes sense from a burnout perspective, but when it comes to tech, these, these are some of the most desirable employees with the most job options out there. And so when it comes to resigning, you might think to yourself, before I quit, what am I going to do? Can I get back into the workforce if I decide my sabbatical ends earlier, what I would like to do next? And so for tech workers, there's just this really robust market, especially um, if you're a talented tech worker. And so there's probably less risk for them resigning, less of a consideration for them to have. And the, the tech companies have been probably the most aggressive in terms of changing their work arrangements. Talk to me a little bit about the upsides and the downsides of the ability to work remotely. Working remotely gives us the freedom to arrange our work in the way we want, in a way that, that being in the office just can't match. And so we really enjoy that freedom. And you have the freedom to do it all day, from seven o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night. So, so that gets into some of the cons, right? So, so our workday has definitely expanded um, to keep up productivity. So you might start checking email earlier and then intersperse your day with different activities. And there is Zoom fatigue. And of course, child care or any sort of um, caregiving duties is difficult when it comes to balancing a job at home and taking on those responsibilities. Who's going to win out of this? I think there is a win-win outcome to this, or, or one silver lining of the pandemic could be this win-win outcome for organizations that realize this is a chance to rethink work. How can we redesign work in a way that really engages our employees? If there was anything that sort of worried me, would worry me, it's that remote work um, you know, opens you up to a global market of competition. So you're no longer maybe competing for a job with people in your same market. You're competing with individuals around the world. Professor Anthony Klotz, so nice to talk to you. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you. Next on Matter of Fact, disaster aid is trickling in to rebuild Puerto Rico's battered electrical grid. So many residents are installing their own power source. Is power going to be an issue for you? Soledad explores the growing solar solution and later. In a lab near the Himalayas, an Indian engineer is creating something called an ice stupa, an artificial glacier. Could his idea be a key to curbing climate change? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Four years ago, when Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico, it left nearly 3,000 people dead, caused nearly $100 billion in damage, and it knocked out power to the residents of the island for nearly a year. To help rebuild Puerto Rico's homes, highways, and the electrical grid, Congress allocated about $63 billion in disaster relief. Reports show that little of that aid money has gone to repair the outdated power grid. In fact, Puerto Rico's residents are still very vulnerable. Just this week, widespread power outages and rolling blackouts affected nearly a third of the grid's customers. Debates over Puerto Rico's energy future have many on the island advocating for a solar solution. It's something that we saw in person back in 2019. The island from above. Blue tarps cover leaky roofs. Some old power lines are in disrepair. Puerto Rico is still on the mend. How bad did things get here? Very bad. You know, you see, that's my roof. Joseph Cordero's family lost their roof and power for nearly four months. All this area, you know, the electricity going fast. Any wind, any rain, the electricity goes. Even not in a hurricane? Yeah. Hmm. But next time will be different. The Corderos and many Puerto Ricans say they have a homegrown plan to recover from the storms that will surely follow Maria. 
They call it autogestión or self-sufficiency. Están haciendo eso ahora mismo. Están dependiendo de ellos, no de ya de de la agencia gubernamental y todas esas cosas. You want to depend on your, yourself, yeah, not exactly. the government to, to rescue you, mm -hmm. if you will. For the Corderos, autogestión means embracing solar power. It costs $3,400 to install solar panels that power their entire home. If, you know, another owner can pass, we have electricity because we know the pay no more for the, the big plants. 98% of Puerto Rico's power comes from electrical grids like this one in nearby Guayama. They can run on oil, natural gas, or coal. The electricity is carried on lines above ground through rainforests and mountains to get to more populated parts of the island. Ruth Santiago is a lawyer working with Comunidad Coqui, a group of residents who've been lobbying for more than four years to replace these plants with solar power. Community groups and residents um, are very impacted by this in so many ways. Um, you can hear the noise, that's not the least of which. There's lots of air pollution coming from this plant. Also, the water discharges. The Puerto Rican Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, was struggling before Maria. They had declared bankruptcy and took 11 months to fully restore power. This is the communications array, mm -hmm. which is powered by this solar panel array over here. Solar power helped this fire station in San Juan get its communications equipment up and running two months after Hurricane Maria. An NGO called Empowered by Light partnered with the solar energy company Sunrun to install panels on their roof. They've outfitted 11 fire stations with panels since then. Javier Rua Jove is Sunrun's director of public policy. After the hurricane, there's a new consensus. There's a new paradigm. Uh, we all suffered. Uh, all social classes suffered. Uh, we realized that this lack of power is being in another time and place, which was untenable. It cost thousands of lives. These panels at an experimental solar farm in Salinas have the capacity to create electricity for up to 2,000 homes. So do you feel like never again is power going to be an issue for you? We prepare for everything. We are ready. If they're going to come on another hurricane more powerful, we are ready. We have God. God is good. <laughs> and you have solar power. Yeah. <laughs> Javier Rua Jove, who you just saw in our story, is now the chief policy officer for the Solar Energy and Storage Association. He tells us about 1,100 new customers are converting to solar every month, though the large-scale solar farms say they're not seeing similar growth. Like other solar advocates, Jove is concerned that using FEMA's funds to fix the power grid won't solve the problems or withstand the next big storm. Ahead on Matter of Fact, pandemic pressures shutter another rural hospital. We got to get close together now and make sure our friends get to the help they need. What's ahead for the people left behind in some of the communities hardest hit by COVID-19? Plus, our first look at the artificial glaciers growing in a mountain desert. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. The numbers tell the story. Rural Americans are two times more likely to die from COVID-19 than people who live in urban areas. Since the pandemic start, one in 434 people living in rural America have died. 
Compare that to one in 513 in cities. The latest numbers from the Centers for Disease Control put the total number of vaccinations in rural areas at just over 39%. The people in these areas are poor. They're older. They tend to have more underlying conditions than their urban counterparts. They also have less access to adequate health care. Rural Georgia has been especially hard hit. We've been fighting this financial battle for, for it, you know, 20 plus years. We were under a strain anyway. COVID pushed us over the edge. The effect it had on our employees, just devastating. This hospital has been a lifeline to the community. Now people have to get in an ambulance and go probably 30, 45 minutes an hour to the nearest emergency room. Dr. Harry Hyman is a public health expert with more than 20 years of experience as a primary care physician. He teaches public health at Georgia State University. Dr. Hyman, thank you for talking with me. So the lack of access to care, really, how is this affecting these horrific numbers that we're seeing? And, and how long have we seen this happening? What we're seeing with rural hospitals in America is a, is a trend uh, that's been worsening over the last 10 years. We've seen over 130 hospitals closing uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, and a lot of that, too, is related to the decision about whether or not to expand Medicaid. Uh, in non-expansion states, uh, we're seeing a pretty significant loss of rural hospitals. Uh, in expansion states, many of those hospitals were actually stabilized. So if you think about uh, states across the South, for example, rural communities disproportionately affected by COVID without the rural hospital infrastructure to take care of those people. Very challenging. To see more about the rural hospital crisis and caregiver burnout, go to matteroffact.tv. Coming up on Matter of Fact, are the headlines about soaring crime rates spreading fake news? There is this overwhelming perception that defunding the police, which means to reallocate funding away from police, correlates with increases in crime. And the research simply does not bear that out. What do the numbers really tell us? What's the reality when it comes to talking about violent crime? Despite the headlines shouting about a surge in crime, the numbers from the FBI provide a more nuanced picture. In 2020, overall, crime decreased. Property crimes were down significantly, part of a decades-long trend. Violent crimes went up by 5%, though relatively flat over the past 10 years. The singular outlier is the rate of homicide, which went up by about 26%, though that's still far below the peak numbers of the 1990s. Talking about crime is complicated. Dr. Rayshawn Ray is one of the nation's leading experts on policing and criminal justice reform. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Rayshawn Ray, nice to see you as always. I'd love for you to jump in for me in these numbers. What do these numbers tell you exactly? We know that we are living in unprecedented times. We are living during a pandemic, but we've also been dealing with a very contentious political climate, and then obviously a very contentious racial and social climate, and also a very unstable economy. When you put all of those factors together, any one of those in a singular fashion would actually lead to increases in crime. When a massive amount of people experience fluctuations with their jobs, with their education, with their normal family life, 
it leads to increases in violent crime, not just in terms of what happens publicly, but also what's happening inside people's homes from dealing with domestic violence to family members and friends actually getting into it and causing harm to one another. It sounds like you're saying, listen, there's an intersection between violent crime and, and, and mental health issues. Are you seeing that same thing when it comes to violence against women? Most definitely. I mean, we know that violence against women is something that continues to rear its ugly head. And part of it has to do with the lack of accountability in the criminal justice system, where oftentimes uh, men and boys get a slap on the wrist for the treatment of individuals, particularly when they are in the same household as them, particularly dealing with domestic violence. And we know that a lot of this is wrapped up in masculinity, is wrapped up in the way that men process life, that for a lot of men being a provider, is how they view themselves worthy of their manhood. And when that doesn't happen, they aim to exert power, oftentimes physical dominance, over women who are in their lives. And so we're seeing that play out in households all over America that are trying to grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the challenges that is brought forth. Can we talk a little bit about police reform? Um, I've had a number of people tell me that the spike in violence is because the, quote, police have been defunded. There is this overwhelming perception that defunding the police, which means to reallocate funding away from police, correlates with increases in crime, meaning there are going to be fewer police doing their jobs. And the research simply does not bear that out. Let's go to Oakland. Let's go to Minneapolis. Let's go to Chicago, where roughly 40% of all taxpayer money in those cities go to law enforcement. If you have a city where 40% of funding is being spent on police, reallocating 5% of that funding for social services, for employment opportunities, for education, can actually lead to a decrease in crime because the biggest correlates with violent crime is education and work instability, which is why during COVID, we've been seeing such a big spike in violent crime. Dr. Rayshawn Ray, nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for your insight around uh, these data points. Thank you, as always, for having me on. Still ahead, the ingenious idea taking root in the high mountain deserts of India. Could this man-made glacier keep water flowing to some of the driest land on Earth? If I said India, you probably wouldn't think of man-made glaciers. But in a lab near the Himalayas, an Indian engineer is creating something called an ice stupa, an artificial glacier. More than just freezing some water, stupas use wastewater that's pumped uphill into a container and stored then at high elevations where it freezes. It creates kind of a glacial hill. In the spring, the stupa melts and flows down into the valleys. And during the driest months of the year, that water is critical, both for drinking water and for irrigation water. The concept was invented back in 2013, and it's now being put to the test in northern India. So, fingers crossed, it does what it's supposed to do. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the great resignation and how it's changing the workplace, the growing solar power movement in Puerto Rico, rural America's struggle against COVID-19, and the pandemic's impact on crime, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.